This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Greg Fleming, and he is currently the CEO of Rockefeller Capital Management, formerly the family office of the famous Rockefeller family fortune. Uh, Greg is one of these people that a lot of folks who are not in the industry may not know his name, but he's been instrumental in shaping, a, really shaping Wall Street. He's, he's done a number of, you know, incredible deals that uh, starting out with um, BlackRock and the purchase of Merrill Lynch's uh, wealth management sides or asset management side, uh, that was really quite a fascinating deal that allowed what was essentially in-house Merrill Lynch assets uh, to be sold to anybody who wanted to buy them. Uh, you can imagine prior to that transaction why people at other firms, let's say UBS or Morgan Stanley, wouldn't want to buy a Merrill Lynch product. Once it went to an outside party like BlackRock, uh, that changed the dynamic and eventually led to BlackRock becoming an $8 trillion asset manager. Uh, he also was instrumental in the sale of Merrill Lynch itself to Bank America in the midst of the financial crisis. And he has been an advisor on a number of other deals, um, too numerous to mention, the, most recently the sale of um, the Miami Marlins to a group led by uh, Derek Jeter, who he's been working with and has known both personally and professionally for decades. Uh, this is really a fascinating conversation with someone who is as knowledgeable of the business of investment banking and wealth management and financial planning as really anybody in the world. Uh, so with no further ado, my conversation with Rockefeller Capital Management's Greg Fleming. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Greg Fleming. He is the founding CEO of Rockefeller Capital Management, which essentially is a re-envisioning of the Rockefeller family office that has been around for quite a long time. He comes to us from both senior positions in Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley, where he worked as an acclaimed investment banker. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you very much, Barry. It's great to be here. So I mentioned you you began your career as an investment banker. Uh, I know you were at Merrill Lynch in the 1990s. How do you transition from consulting with one set of clients to finance with a somewhat different set of clients? In some ways, it was uh, it was a pretty seamless transition in the sense that I was providing strategic and management advice to multiple clients uh, at uh, Booz Allen and Hamilton, and then I I was also providing strategic, uh, tactical, and financial advice to clients as an investment banker. So I do think that that training helped me to position myself more quickly to be able to counsel senior executives and CEOs on whether I would do a deal if I were them or were we recommending something and helping them think through what are the, the next steps in, in their businesses. So when I left, uh, I left Booz Allen in late 1992 and joined Merrill Lynch. And, and frankly, one of the reasons I left Barry was because I wanted to get uh, closer to the follow-up, the execution. Uh, and I found 
you know, eventually I went uh, from being an investment banker and an advisor there to leading businesses, which I, I like the most, and I'll get to that. But when I when I went to uh, Booz Allen, uh, when I went to Merrill Lynch from Booz Allen, uh, I, my thought was to get into a company and get closer to being able to actually uh, see through the vision that you work with clients on as a management consultant. So Merrill Lynch in, um, in the early 90s was a tremendous place. Uh, it was taking off as an institutional firm. It had been a, a retail-focused firm for decades, uh, really uh, from its founding early in the 20th century. Uh, in the 1990s, they had done a series of acquisitions that had positioned them well to build an institutional business. I found the culture to be meritocratic, performance-based. If you did well, you could move quickly. Uh, I joined in late 1992. I started more on the management side uh, within municipal finance, uh, helping run that business. And then I moved to investment banking and the financial institutions group. Uh, and I started working directly with clients, particularly, interestingly enough, in the asset management space, where I really uh, spent the first uh, years of my career as an investment banker advising asset management companies on potential sales uh, and uh public offerings, including, uh, and we can get to this, uh, uh, BlackRock. Let's stay with Merrill before we move forward to BlackRock, because I want to talk about your transactions, especially some of the ones that really reshaped um, Wall Street uh, in a bit. Um, the 1990s were a pretty wild go-go time uh, on Wall Street. What was the atmosphere like at Merrill Lynch? Did Did people have a sense of how unique that decade was, or did it just seem business as usual? You know, when you're in it, uh, a decade like that, or really now that, uh, you know, I've, I've worked through multiple decades, when you're in it, uh, you don't necessarily stand back and say, uh, th this is uh, unique in, in all the following ways. You have a sense of it, you might observe some of them. Uh, but as you said, it was a, a very positive environment for the American economy. Uh, as, as you recall, that uh, I think um, uh, Bill Clinton was president from 1992 to 2000. By the time 2000 came, we had a balanced budget. We had tremendous growth in the in the country. Uh, trade was growing uh, all over the world, and, and new countries were starting to enter the uh, the capitalist realm, including uh, you know toward the end of that period, China started coming on the on the horizon. So it was, as you said, a very vibrant time in the United States and around the world from an economic standpoint. Merrill expanded into Europe, bought a company called Smith Newcord, expanded in, in, in uh, Japan and Canada and, and many different places. Uh, we continued to build out the investment banking business and really uh, started competing directly with the firms that had been uh, successful in that uh, farther back and longer, like uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. So it was, as you say, with hindsight, a tremendous decade. And even in it, uh, you had the sense that this was a, um, a robust time. And Merrill Lynch was a place that, uh, that was on, on the move and, and uh, going in a very positive direction. Hmm. So you eventually become chief operating officer at Merrill, uh, a title you held right in the middle of the great financial crisis that had to be madness what was that experience like just a few short years after the go-go 90s 07 08 must have just been insane it was a very challenging time barry i have to say uh i've had great uh success and luck in my career and and uh 
the latter is is important for everybody. Um, and uh, uh, in and because of uh, of working hard and, and doing well, but getting opportunities, I moved quickly into different positions of uh, increasing responsibility at Merrill. And I was named uh, co-president and co-chief operating officer in April of 2007. That turned out with hindsight and pretty quickly, actually, to have been uh, a challenging time to step into that because uh, by the fall uh, on the fixed income side of Merrill Lynch, there were significant uh, challenges as there were throughout the industry, particularly with subprime assets. So that whole period turned into one of the most intense and stressful of my career, probably of many careers. Uh, I worked for Stan O'Neill leading up to the fall of 07, and then uh, he was replaced with John Thane, who became my new boss. And John and I raised uh, a lot of capital to uh, help Merrill Lynch deal with its balance sheet challenges, uh, literally turning the capital base of the company almost over. I think we raised north of $25 billion in capital on a company that going into all this had uh, approximately $30 billion in capital. And we, uh, we thought by the summer uh, of 08, we had uh, worked the firm through it, but uh, there were continuing challenges in the fall of 08. So we ultimately sold the firm to Bank of America in a very stressful weekend uh, in September of 2008, a memorable weekend. Uh, and we closed that deal in early 09, and, and I left the firm and, and went on to other things. Lessons from that time for me, and I, I have three children that are in their early 20s, and we talk about many different things. And uh, we have a quote of the day on our text chain and um, uh, lots of advice across different topics. Uh, but the primary lesson from that time from my vantage point is that uh, when you're in a position of, a, of responsibility and authority uh, and, and things are happening uh, around you, you need to step up. Uh, there were times during that time because I had moved quickly in my career where, uh, you know, seven or eight years earlier, I was a senior investment banker running the financial institutions group at Merrill Lynch. And now I was uh, front and center on making decisions as to whether we would stay independent and could we get it sold and under what circumstances. Uh, and one of the things that I, I say with hindsight and moving forward is uh, somebody is going to be in that position. So. Don't spend any time wondering uh, where everybody is and, uh, uh, you know, why the pressure is on your shoulders. It's there and you need to react to it and you need to rise to that occasion and try to do the right thing by the many people that are depending upon you. And that is one of the major lessons I took away from that time. And fortunately, we did get Merrill Lynch into a good spot. And I think it's prospered under Bank of America I think it could have been an amazing company if it stayed on a standalone basis, but uh, that wasn't ultimately uh, the result that uh, was in the cards. My special guest today is Greg Fleming. He is the CEO of Rockefeller Capital Management. He has been really at the center of some pretty amazing deals that helped to reshape finance as we know it today. Let's, uh, let's discuss some of them, and we'll start with the sale of Merrill's money management business to BlackRock, that was something like a $9 billion deal, uh, ultimately led to uh, a number of aspects of BlackRock, including iShares and, and on and on down the road, that allowed them to become one of the, the great powerhouses in finance. Tell us what was behind that deal. 
You know, Barry, I had a long history with BlackRock at that point in time. In fact, it went all the way back to the mid-90s uh, when I worked with them on uh, on raising some closed-end funds that they uh, they went to Merrill Lynch's retail business to be part of. I got to know the leadership team, uh, Larry Fink, the CEO, uh, and some of the other senior executives there, Rob Capito, Ralph Schlossstein. When we took it public, Barry, the stock was at uh, $14 a share, and uh, it's obviously uh, uh, many, many uh, years ago, and it's done tremendously over that time and is uh, wherever it is today, $600 a share or more. So that transaction uh, cemented a relationship that I had already been building with them, and I stayed in close touch with them. I really was uh, one of the strategic advisors that Larry and team relied upon, and that's what led to the Merrill Lynch deal. Uh, we were thinking about what we were going to do with our asset management business. It was a very good business, primarily equity-based and retail-based in the U.S. And BlackRock was looking for both of those things to fill out what was still at that time a primarily fixed-income institutional manager. So we started uh, a negotiation and a dialogue. On this one, I actually represented Merrill Lynch and and my boss at the time, Stan O'Neill. And uh, Larry Fink had uh, his financial advisor, who, uh, interestingly enough, was Gary Shedlin, who's now his CFO. And we put that deal together in uh, 2005 and created uh, the BlackRock that really was positioned because it then had broad-based product capabilities, equity, and fixed income. It had uh, broad-based retail access and distribution we positioned BlackRock to uh, really go on the run that it's gone on since then. Obviously, Larry and team have executed brilliantly. Merrill Lynch took back a 49% ownership stake in BlackRock. That was the part of the magic of the transaction. Larry continued to control the company, but he had a very big partner. I went on the board of BlackRock uh, and, and stayed on the board until uh, I left uh, Merrill Lynch in, in 2009. So I, I do take pride in having helped BlackRock at multiple key points along the way uh, in this company, becoming the uh, amazing uh, company with, uh, I think, approximately $8 trillion in assets uh, under management uh, in, uh, in 2020. True, truly astonishing. You, um, you mentioned previously the transaction that brought Merrill Lynch to Bank, uh, Bank of America. That was quite the abbreviated process. Uh, is it true that was essentially completed over a weekend? And and just to remind everybody, that transaction took place um, in the fall of 08. You had AIG and Lehman teetering on bankruptcy. The world looked like it was going to hell. How did that transaction happen, and, and how did it happen so quickly? Well, it did take place over a weekend, and we announced it uh, the Monday morning of that uh, weekend was... Uh September 15th. I will never forget it. Uh, but we had, Bank America had been interested in Merrill for some time. And I had had dialogue in, uh, in the months leading up to it uh, with some of the senior executives at Bank America and, and with a lawyer who does not get enough credit for having put this transaction together. A friend of mine named Ed Hurley, at Wachtell Lipton, so it wasn't like we talked to Bank America for the first time on, on Friday and announced the deal on Monday. They had done a tremendous amount of work on Merrill Lynch over the years as a prospective partner. And they were aware that uh, circumstances might come to pass where we could potentially be interested 
uh, in a transaction with Bank of America. So that backdrop, I think, is important. But the reality is is that it did come together uh, in the final analysis that quickly. On Saturday morning, September 13th, very early in the morning, uh, John Thane and I had multiple conversations of, about him reaching out to Ken Lewis, the CEO of Bank of America, and saying, we should talk this weekend. I was very focused on trying to get the transaction done on the weekend because I thought that Lehman had no partner uh, that was uh, on the on the grapevine. Everybody was wondering what was going to happen to Lehman. And I believed if Lehman uh, did file for Chapter 11, as they did on Sunday night, that the markets on Monday would be uh, a disaster and Merrill Lynch would quickly come under pressure as the next smallest uh, securities firm that was still in existence. So I knew this is one of the benefits of the training as an investment banker. I knew the value of a weekend. And I was pushing uh, John Friday night and Saturday morning to uh, initiate contact, and he ultimately did. And Ken Lewis flew to New York uh, on Saturday and had a meeting with John Thane early Saturday afternoon. And uh, they agreed on us uh, uh, allowing them to do diligence and starting a dialogue around a potential transaction. In that dialogue, I think John was thinking maybe a minority investment. Uh, Ken Lewis was clearly thinking he would buy the firm. Later that evening, we started due diligence in uh, in an intensive way. Uh, We were on one floor at Wachtell Lipton and Bank of America was on another. Wachtell was the advisor, the legal advisor to Bank of America at this point in time. And on Sunday morning, uh, a man named Greg Curl, who was the lead negotiator for Ken Lewis, and I met uh, very early, I think it was 7 a.m., to discuss the terms of a, of a transaction. I remember having gone back to a hotel I was staying in uh, a couple hours earlier and taking a shower. Nobody was sleeping. We hadn't slept in several days. And walking back to Wachtell Lipton, which is in Midtown, it was very quiet and thinking, if I didn't get this negotiation right, we have 65,000 employees. This firm has been around for almost 95 years, uh, and a lot hung on what happened in the next 24 hours. And I did feel the pressure of that. It was the uh, will always be the most pressured moment of my career, I think. Uh, when somebody will come into my office today or at any point since then and say, we've got a big problem, I'll say to them, I'm sure we have an issue to deal with. But a big problem is being the president of a 95-year-old firm with a brand like Merrill Lynch 24 hours before a market may open and and, uh, and put you in a very difficult position. The stress was, was frankly, uh, almost unbearable. I had colleagues on our team saying to me, just get it sold at almost any price. And I remember having a debate at 2 or 3 in the morning, and uh, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin had this in, in his book, uh, uh, Too Big to Fail, with one of my colleagues about uh, whether anybody ever finds something uh, that they really want to buy. If you say to them, you can virtually have it for nothing. You know, My view was Merrill Lynch was an incredible firm. We had the best wealth management business at the, in the industry at the time. We owned 49% of BlackRock. We had a first-class investment bank. Uh, there were, uh, as I said, 95 years in, in the making. Uh, bank of America should pay for all that. And ultimately, they did. And to their credit, over the ensuing years, the deals worked out tremendously for Bank of America. 
we negotiated the sale of Merrill Lynch for $29 a share that Sunday morning. It had closed on Friday at $17 a share. That will still be one of the negotiations I'm proudest of for my whole uh, career. Again, I do think that it was fair value for America, given the quality of the people, the franchise, the brand that they bought at Merrill Lynch. No, the, the deal definitely worked out for everybody involved. Take a look at a, a recent deal that I don't believe you were involved in, but in, but it involves one of your old shops. You were, you were senior at Morgan Stanley. They just purchased Eaton Vance for about $7 billion. How does a friendly deal under terms where there isn't any sort of economic crisis or um, real financial stress, clearly we're going through uh, 2020 is going through its own crisis, but in terms of asset managers, it's nothing like 2008 or 9. How does a deal like Morgan scooping up Eaton Vance differ than what you guys had accomplished with Bank America and Merrill Lynch? Well, it happens in a more uh, traditional fashion. So uh, the leadership of Morgan Stanley, James Gorman, my old boss, uh, uh, with whom I I continue to stay in close touch, uh, uh, would be interested in building his asset manager business and would be thinking about different firms that might enhance their capabilities. And he might have dialogue. And none of this, uh, by the way, uh, am I repeating firsthand. This is just what what happens in cases like this. He would have dialogue in, in different potential directions about firms that might be uh, a good fit. Uh, and, and it would proceed that way. And, and a firm like Eaton Vance might be thinking that uh, they've had uh, a good trajectory, but they, they could have their growth and capabilities enhanced by the right partner. That's the typical uh, uh, dance that occurs in, in, in an M&A situation. And that's been true for a long time and, and will always be true. Uh, and, and frankly, that is the value of experienced investment bankers who act more as advisors and counselors. And this will eventually lead me to what we'll talk about Rockefeller later. But one of the things we're trying to do at Rockefeller Capital Management, whatever the business, is to act as an advisor or counselor to the client. And I like those words. Uh, I, I think they, the connotation coming out of that is, is an important part of how the client uh, starts to trust and rely on the judgment that you provide. Um, so that's how uh, a transaction like that would occur uh, in an environment like this, in almost any environment. Frankly, uh, Barry, the 2008-2009 the time uh, in my career is unique uh, because the, the stresses in the financial system there uh, were greater than anything we've seen before or likely to see for a long time. 2020 is, is its own unique uh, crisis because of the breadth of the problems and the fact that COVID affects everybody uh, and it's economy-wide. But in terms of the uh, the financial sector in particular, 08, 09 really was the the, uh, the reckoning. Uh, so transactions that were occurring then, you know, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, in, in, in some ways, as I said, there was some lead up to it, even though a lot of it was that weekend. But there are transactions that, that were talked about uh, and occurred or, or didn't occur. We don't have to go through the list of very big banks in the, in the weeks and months that followed that were suggest, suggested quickly 
and looked at very quickly, including the biggest names in the space. And that was because there was a real uh, sense of, of almost panic, even on the part of the regulators, to make sure these big financial institutions were going to emerge from that crisis safely. And you weren't going to have any more financial institutions go the path of Lehman Brothers. You know, it's funny Funny you say that. I, I have a vivid recollection of my wife's Washington Mutual ATM card and that transaction with them and J.P. Morgan Chase also took place over the weekend. And it seems so seamless that on Friday it was a Washington Mutual card and on Monday you could use it at any Chase ATM without being charged the non-bank fee for a for a different account, it the transaction was that fast and that seamless, um, so so clearly that period was unique in in M and A history. I want to I want to ask you about two more transactions before we move on um, to our next set of topics. One is the sale um, of Skybridge for Mooch for for Anthony Scaramucci who took a position in, in the White House. Um, what was that like in the midst of all of that politicking and, and having the government look over your shoulder due to uh, national security concerns? What was that Skybridge transaction like? You know, I'd known Anthony for a long time, way back to after he left Goldman Sachs. He, he, uh, he started a company that uh, was sold to Newberger Berman. Uh, and um, I represented him on, on that and helped him get that sale done right around September 11th. Uh, and actually, the president of Newburgh at the time was a guy named Bob Matza, who uh, went on to become a, a, a good friend and counselor to Anthony as well. So I don't know, whatever it was, 15 or 16 years later, uh, I, I had left Morgan Stanley, and Anthony called me and asked me if I would help with the sale of the business, and I said I would do that for him uh, and uh, we, we basically did what we always do. Uh, we uh, put some materials together describing what Skybridge is and why it would be an attractive opportunity. Uh, and I had a team working with me, and we contacted prospective buyers, and we took first-round bids. And then we ultimately uh, uh, were uh, on, on a path to negotiate a transaction uh, with the Chinese buyer. And we, we announced it, and we signed it. And then... Uh, uh, it was early uh, 2017, and President Trump took office, and uh, it ultimately never got uh, all the regulatory approvals it needed to, and uh, the, the deal didn't go forward. So from my vantage point, though, it was more of an ordinary course transaction where I was helping Anthony uh, put his business in, in, uh, in new hands. The notion was that they were going to leverage that Skybridge product base uh, outside the U.S. And, and bring distribution, particularly in Asia. It was all kind of uh, more of a of a logical uh, regular transaction. Huh. So let me ask you about a what might be a totally different type of transaction. You were involved in several variations of the deal to sell uh, the Miami Marlins. Ultimately, and ended up in the hands of a consortium of people that, if I recall correctly, included both Derek Jeter and Michael Jordan. Tell us about the uh, the Marlins transaction, and, and what were some of the early iterations of that like? Well, actually, uh, Barry, uh, I represented the group buying the Marlins, 
Yes. Uh, because of uh, a friendship I have with uh, with Derek. Uh, when I had left Morgan Stanley, Derek had uh, retired, and he was very focused on being an owner of a major league franchise. He and I have been friends back to my early years at Morgan Stanley, about 10 years now. So we were looking at different uh, baseball clubs that we might be able to buy. The Marlins were for sale. Derek was focused on different parts of the of the country that he'd like to own a team in, and Miami was certainly on that list. So we put a group together to buy the Marlins, and um, and ultimately uh, were the winning bidders. Um, I advised the group. I advised Derek. Uh, he and I, as you know, continue to work closely together today. I'm one of the uh, uh, owners in the in the Marlins, although uh, one of the smaller owners, and I do. Uh, 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 sit, sit on the board and, and continue to advise uh, Derek on a, on a range of things. Um, one of the things that we're, we're proud of with the Marlins is that uh, the, the franchise is in uh, a really good spot, having uh, gone through uh, two or three years of turnaround here. Derek is the, the CEO of the Marlins. He runs the whole club, baseball and business. He's put his own team in place, and you saw he made a terrific hire last week the first female general manager in Major League Baseball history, who Derek, and this says a lot about who Derek is, thought was the best person for the job, but he also was pleased to see a barrier like that broken. Uh, so that was announced just last week. So uh, the, the uh, uh, I'm not going to comment on who other owners are, because uh, it is a private club and um uh, the, the names of specific owners are, uh, it's up to them to, to say uh, whether they're an owner or not. Uh, but Derek has many, as you know, uh, friends across the landscape and lots of people rooting for him and supporting him. And uh, he's, uh, he's done a terrific job uh, leading this, uh, this club so far. And uh, you saw that we, uh, the Marlins were in the playoffs last year. Uh, they were the surprise team. They have one of the top uh, farm systems in baseball now. Derek put that together uh, with people he hired, Gary Denbo, who was with the Yankees. And we expect the Miami Marlins to do well year in and year out for a long time under the enlightened leadership of Derek Jeter. Huh, quite, quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about your current place of employment. The Rockefeller family office has been around for a really long time. What was the thinking behind transforming this into Rockefeller Capital Management? Barry, let, let me walk you through how Rockefeller Capital Management came into existence, and it'll provide some color on the Rockefeller legacy. So in March of 2018, uh, we bought Rock & Co. And Rock & Co. was originally the family office of John Rockefeller Sr., the, the guy, the one who started it all way back in 1882. It became a multifamily office in the 1970s. And when we bought it in March of 2018, we rebranded it, uh, renamed it Rockefeller Capital Management because we wanted to be clear that we were in partnership with the Rockefellers, but that we were taking care of clients across a broad spectrum of clients. So uh, we thought Rock & Co. sounded more like uh, a specific family office. So it's Rockefeller Capital Management. We are in partnership with the Rockefellers, though. Many of them are our clients. Uh, two of them sit on our board, David Rockefeller Jr. and Peter O'Neill. They are part owners of Rockefeller Capital Management, the family. 
uh, and they're important partners, and they care about what we do with their iconic name uh, and how we treat it. And the name has been spectacular. It is a name that is respected in every corner of the United States and around the world. What the family has done over decades, over many decades, in philanthropy uh, in the United States and in different parts of the world, there's a hospital in Beijing that the family started in 1921 that's still there and highly regarded. Uh, The Rockefellers started Spelman College uh, way back in the 1880s. Uh, the reach of the Rockefellers in terms of the imprint that they've made in a positive sense on society, the philanthropy, they were one of the earliest uh, in sustainable investing. In fact, the Rockefellers coined impact investing at one of our sister uh, organizations, Rockefeller Foundation. So uh, the Rockefellers are, are an amazing part of uh, United States history an iconic name around which we're building our business. So our business uh, is uh, really advising and and counseling clients across wealth management, strategic advisory, investment banking, and asset management. And all those different pieces uh, fit together well. The wealth management is the, the business that the predecessor company was in, and it's uh, really what we're uh, putting at the heart of Rockefeller Capital Management. And and what we've been working on, Barry, in the last two and a half years is building from scratch a uh, private wealth business focused on um, best-in-class private wealth advisors taking care of clients as they do throughout the industry and marrying that to a family office set of capabilities, including trust companies and other things that the business that we bought bring to the table to create a holistic offering for clients. We're trying on the wealth management side to take care of clients across all of their needs, not just investments and asset allocation, but generational work. We've taken care of seven generations of Rockefellers. We have two trust companies we're integrally involved in helping clients figure out what they do with their money for follow-on generations. So that's our wealth management platform. In addition to what we do for those clients on the wealth management side, we do have a strategic advisory business, and this was intentional. This comes out of my background, and it was part of the vision that we had for Rockefeller Capital Management. In the United States, much of the wealth for families comes from starting businesses. That's the defining characteristic of the United States. And to this day, there's so many private businesses that are started by families that get built up. So we wanted to make sure that we had the capabilities to advise those families on what they should do with those businesses, whether it's to continue to invest in them and run them and keep them private, whether it's potentially to sell the business or take it public. So we have uh, Rockefeller Strategic Advisory, which is there to uh, provide that kind of advice to the family. We obviously do a fair amount of investment banking work away from just taking care of our families. And we have some of the most senior and seasoned investment bankers, advisors, counselors, as I like to say, working at Rockefeller Capital Management with us. And then our asset management business often serves those uh, uh, wealthy clients on the wealth management side, but we're also building our asset management business through institutions and intermediaries. uh, So it's a standalone opportunity for clients outside of our wealth management business. Our asset management business uh, focuses on ESG investing. They've been doing it longer than most firms because the family, the Rockefeller family, 
uh, got into this sooner than many. So we're very focused in our Rockefeller Asset Management business on sustainable investing, and we're raising assets uh, around the world in things like uh, ocean engagement and climate solutions and other strategies that are increasingly getting a following, not just among millennials and Generation Z, but mainstream investors. I would imagine clients like the Rockefeller family or other people of great wealth that have been um, managing uh, that wealth for many generations are going to demand a certain level of service. And as I was kicking around your website, I noticed that some of the services were really kind of interesting. Obviously, philanthropic advisory service is pretty standard in the wealth management space. But you also do things like private health advisory and personal security. Tell us a little bit about some of these uh, concierge-level services that you're offering to the ultra-high-net-worth investor. Barry, I'm glad you uh, were going around the website, and I, I, I'm pleased to get that question because it's at the heart of what we're trying to do for our clients, and we believe it differentiates us at Rockefeller Capital Management because our exclusive focus is on high net worth and ultra high net worth clients and and, uh, and families. And what we're trying to do with them is provide them holistic thinking and service. We want to solve their problems wherever they lie. And that includes conflict-free advice on, on whatever they come to us with. It includes things like what you were just describing. Uh, we call it Rock Rockefeller Lifestyle Advisory. We have uh, relationships, joint ventures with different partners who bring things to bear that our clients might be looking for along the way, even if it's not tied to investing and generational planning and the specific financial side. And I'll give you an example. I have a, a 20-year-old son who was traveling a few years ago, and we were a little bit uh, focused, my wife and I, on, on security and some of the places he wanted to travel in. And we uh, uh, were put into contact with a private security company, who, uh, which was run, and we like this, uh, the founder was somebody who, who had expertise in the space, and it was his firm. And, and they gave us some advice on, on how to uh, make sure that he acted safely in the places he was in. You know, they offered a GPS chip to, uh, uh, that we, could, uh, we and they could keep an eye on, uh, on where he was safely, things like that. And he took the trip. There are many clients that, uh, that have family members that might uh, benefit from that advice, and they don't know where to turn they can turn to us. It's the same thing on, on uh, we have a, a joint venture with a healthcare company. And even high net worth and ultra high net worth clients, sometimes if they leave a job, they don't have healthcare. Well, we can help them get the healthcare in, a, in an efficient and cost-effective manner through our joint venture partner. So we want to be there for the client, whatever the need. And that's one of the reasons why we put together Rockefeller Lifestyle Advisory. We deliver all of this, Barry, through the person who's at the center of the relationship with the client. So we're not having lots of different people reach out to the client. We have a private wealth advisor who is the uh, point of contact for the client on all of this. We're just channeling this through to the private wealth advisor and the people focused on, on uh, managing the client relationship so that um, th they have access to all this, but is delivered in a holistic, efficient manner to the specific client. 
One, one of the things in that lifestyle grouping is philanthropic advisory. And I have to note how many different boards that you yourself are either on or have been on. We mentioned BlackRock previously, but you're on the board of advisors for the Yale Law School Center for the Study of Corporate Law. Um, you were a di- former director at Colgate University. You're on the Council of Foreign Relations, the Economic Club of New York, the Ronald McDonald House Board of Directors. Uh, how does that experience color the sort of advice you're capable of providing to ultra-high net worth investors? You know, we, we do a tremendous amount of work with these ultra-high net worth investors in terms of both talking this through and then helping them set up uh, – you know, the efficient structures, foundations uh, through which they can uh, direct their wealth. I mean, one of the things that, that I'm proud of personally, uh, given my background, and I'm uh, proud of, of a lot of Americans, is the notion of giving back. You know, my father was the first one in his family to go to college. His father and my grandfather graduated from the second grade and went to work. My mother's father, my grandfather on that side, graduated from the eighth grade and went to work. So uh, I feel incredibly lucky to have had the the career and the life that I'm living, and I want to do what I can wherever I can to have an impact on on others, and I'm inculcating that in my children, and they they already feel that. We have so many clients that think that way, and one of the great things about this country, lots of challenges in this country at this point in time, but one of the reasons I remain very upbeat on the United States going forward is because of the, the people in it, the breadth of talent, the desire to have a positive impact. So this is, Barry, a topic we spend a tremendous amount of time with clients on, including how to give back and where they want to give back and what are they most interested in and how can we help them do that efficiently. We also talk to clients about how to talk to their children about money because a lot of the money in this country is first generation, maybe second generation. And we want to uh, make sure that the dialogue's occurring in as constructive a way as possible. Always factoring in the individual uh, interests and, and the individual situation of a specific family. But these are very important topics for, for people. Once they create wealth, what to do with it, how it impacts their children and grandchildren, what to do with it in society, where they can use it to have a positive impact on something they personally care about. That's at the heart of, uh, of the kinds of advice that we're giving our clients. You know, we saw a report today about uh, hedge fund underperformance. There's been a lot of interest in private equity and, and venture capital, but there hasn't been as much alpha as a lot of ultra high net investors would have liked. Do you find uh, this group of investors uh, getting a little fed up for, for the expense of... Uh, for the expensive alpha chasers, for the expensive alpha chasing, are, are they still willing to stick with hedge funds and, and venture capital? Or is it a pricey, let's call it underperforming asset class that people are starting to get a little uh, run out of patience with? Well, Barry, I'll give a, 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 a broader answer and then we can dig into the different pieces. I think for... Uh Wealthy investors, uh, you know, the, the traditional 60-40 or 70-30 asset allocation rule might be less uh, relevant as they might have lower uh, liquidity needs and therefore can take a longer-term view 
less impacted by what happens in in, uh, in short-term market movements. So they might not be focused just on uh, equity and fixed income, but more on growth assets, income, and asset protection assets as, as uh, corollary buckets. And there's no question that private equity remains a big component of ultra-high net worth portfolios. And it has continued to perform well over, over cycles. And actually, companies are increasingly staying private longer. And this has allowed uh, wealthy investors to uh, do something called direct investing, which is uh, being part of capital rounds of private companies. Uh, and that's been a, a significant change and, and something that's much more pronounced in recent years. So it's not just private equity. It's also direct investing. And we see a fair amount of appetite on the part of our uh, clients for uh, those types of uh, opportunities as well. Now, hedge funds, as you said, have struggled more in general. And, and you know, we have a private investment platform where we diligence many private equity firms and many hedge funds. And you need to be careful in picking uh, the sector and the strategy across alternatives that uh, that make sense for clients. And manager selection within that is a, a very important process, uh, making sure that uh, the, the client is investing in a manager that you've thoroughly diligence and you're comfortable with the way they're approaching the strategy and how they're likely to perform over over time. And we think you can you can put together a diversified mix of top quartile managers. Uh, and, you know, that doesn't mean you're not going to move some in and out, but there's still significant demand from our wealthy investors for uh, a broader cross-section of alternatives, including, as I said, direct investment. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, something we were discussing earlier, the transfer and advisement on generational wealth. A lot of complexities within each families. There are a lot of internal Dynamics that nobody really wants to get in the in the middle of. How do you how do you navigate all that? It seems kind of uh, could be challenging. You know, Barry. Given uh, what I've described to you here, which is that we see ourselves as advisors and counselors to our clients across all of the different needs that they have. This is an area that we spend a lot of time in. And we talk to clients about how to talk to uh, younger generations about money. We spend a lot of time talking to clients about how to direct resources into philanthropy and into specific areas of giving back that they're interested in. And it varies from from family to family. This is where you want to be thinking holistically, but bringing the counsel on an individualistic basis. But it is something that uh, is an important part of what we do for our clients. Huh. So, so there's an old expression. It's you know, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. That by the time you get that far away from the original founder's creation of wealth, it it tends to get squandered. How how do you manage around that issue? How do you how do you prevent that third generation from squandering? all that wealth? You know, first of all, Barry, I'm sure uh, there are examples of, uh, of that being true, a third generation having a challenge with money. And there are examples where it's not true. And I can tell you that we're working uh, now with the seventh generation of Rockefellers. So they have been good stewards of the capital that John Rockefeller uh, primarily uh, was the, the creator of over many generations. Uh, and they've done that while giving back uh, on such a comprehensive basis. So I think, 
you know, like a lot of phrases, maybe some truth in that and, and, uh, and not so in many cases. Uh, we do view ourselves as having a real role in providing candid, direct uh, advice to clients on uh, the amount of wealth and um, what makes sense in terms of uh, current consumption versus things they would like to do uh, in, in terms of leaving money to follow on generations or, or setting up philanthropic uh, organizations to, to give back during their lifetimes. And it's an important part of the council that, uh, that we provide on a regular basis. But I know so many uh, of our clients and so many people that have done well in this society. And as I said earlier, often from creating a business and growing it, and if you're starting a business from scratch and growing it, and this would be true even if you get all the way to where Amazon is, there are countless hours so hard to do. So there, there are a lot of admirable characteristics running through that successful business generation. And that often gets transferred the next generation and the generation after that. I know a lot of people with resources, many of whom have created it for themselves and their families, first generation, who are very focused on how to raise their children, how to uh, have an impact on grandchildren so that uh, they are good stewards of capital and are continuing to give back in society uh, in generations down the line. Hmm. Interesting. So, we, you mentioned briefly before that Rockefeller was um, coined the phrase impact investing. Uh, we've been hearing about the rise of ESG, environmental, social, and governance investing, but it doesn't seem like this space has been capturing a lot of assets yet. How, how do you see this uh, ESG investing develop? Where, where do you think this goes from here? Uh, we think it's a secular growth trend. Uh, and in fact, over time, we think uh, ESG investing could really become almost a wrapper for all investing. And I'll tell you why. And, and first of all, on a, on a geographic basis, uh, the Europeans are ahead in this. They've been pushing this for a while. We've had real success in, in, uh, in uh, raising assets from clients in Europe. But the reason that we think it's a secular growth trend is simply because of the focus of the generations that are coming and how millennials and Generation Z are, uh, they view this not as something transitory. They're not in the kind of feel-good part of their lives and they're going to let it go. The uh, belief in investing in a sustainable way that takes into account the environment in which we live, the governance structure of companies, the social issues in society. Uh, you know, when I started, when I came out of law school in the late 1980s, it was very clear that the mandate of the uh, corporation was to uh, maximize profits for shareholders and to allow those shareholders to do what they will with those profits. Companies today are much focused on a broader cross-section of issues, and they have been prodded there by society, and it's now been embraced on a much broader basis. So companies do think about constituents other than shareholders. How do they operate in their community? How do they treat their employees? You know, what are they responding to in terms of things that are happening in society? And, and really, corporations are taking even the lead on some of these things where 30 years ago they would have been dissuaded or frowned on from doing that. So that ripples itself all the way through to investing. Companies are focused on how they operate in society. Companies are being asked 
Tell us about your environmental footprint. What are you doing to make it better? Tell us about how you're you're governing yourselves. What does your board makeup look like? How are you working in terms of diversity? All of this is, uh, is, is, is tied together. And on the investing side, those millennials and Generation Z, and I fancy myself uh, an armchair expert here because I have three kids in their 20s, the first part of their 20s, and I know a lot of their friends. And uh, I think that these generations are, are going to hold on to this for their lifetimes. And they're about to be the dominant part of the workforce of the capital structure, of the investing structure, you know, that's all happening. In fact, they're also increasingly, as you know, uh, Barry, influencing elections. Uh, and the the group between the ages of 18 and 39 uh, were uh, approximately 35% of the voting electorate in this election. That's just going up every year now. So our view is it's secular, it's real, we were one of the front runners in developing these capabilities in our asset management business, and we're going to work hard to continue to grow those capabilities and offer them through to clients, both on the institutional and intermediary side of our asset management business, but also across our wealth management clients. So, so let's stick with that idea and, and stay focused with both um, ESG and philanthropy. Uh, wealth inequality has has really expanded dramatically over the past few decades, but COVID and the pandemic lockdown has really had a giant impact. It it certainly has hurt people who are at the bottom of the economic scale, and in some ways, it's been helpful to a lot of industries at the top of the scale, from finance to technology, and and even some of the. Um, retail uh, aspects that that are internet-based. What sort of philanthropic steps do you see clients undertaking in order to address uh, the ongoing issues generated by uh, the coronavirus? Well, first of all, as you said, Barry, the wealth inequality was and is a major topic for the United States and for all of us pre-COVID. COVID has certainly uh, accelerated and reinforced that in, in some of the ways you talked about, including the fact that a lot of the uh, non-work-from-home businesses are more, uh, there's a broader cross-section of, of workers that are affected in those businesses uh, that, um, uh, that COVID has had the biggest impact on. So this notion of wealth inequality is something that, uh, that uh, people are focused on across the spectrum from an age uh, and, and demographic standpoint. Uh, the, the whole uh, way that this country has thrived and succeeded over generations is the concept that everybody has a shot, everybody has a fair shot of creating an existence for them and their families that is better than the existence that, that they personally might have had. And, and uh you know, I was listening last week to uh, there's a West Virginia senator who's a Democrat who was talking about a centrist agenda. And that's one of the things that, that I uh, comment on coming out of this uh, election. I think people really aren't as divided as uh, some of the pundits say that Americans want uh, more centrist policies that uh, uh, and, and, and politicians, whether Republican or Democrat, that help solve problems. And this this senator, Joe Manchin, said uh his uh, constituents 
want to have an opportunity to take care of themselves and their families in the best possible way, education, skill sets, opportunities for jobs. That's something that uh, I think is, is, is held on a broad basis across the country. So we have a lot of clients that look for different ways of, of impacting that, including giving money uh, to, to, uh, to universities to uh, broaden uh, their ability to admit different kinds of students. Uh, I could give a, a whole laundry list of things that, that our clients are, uh, are focused on uh, to get to the heart of, uh, of, of the inequality of income issue and the, the need for the United States to flourish for the next 100 or 200 or, or, or more years tied to everybody feeling like they've got the shot. Huh, quite interesting. So I have, before I get to my favorite questions, I have two last questions for you. The first is, um, I got to meet Derek Jeter earlier this year at a, an Inside ETF conference, and I was taken by just how thoughtful and articulate and funny and warm he was. He really uh, was a delightful uh, speaker. I got to spend some time with him after the event. But I notice on your, again, on the Rockefeller website, Derek Jeter is the special advisor to the CEO, which is you. What sort of advice does Derek Jeter give you? Well, Derek uh, and I spend a fair amount of time together, uh, and he provides me a lot of uh, important advice, and, and I return the favor. Um, so he he provides advice to me and to Rockefeller uh, on, on a range of topics, uh, you know, including uh, strategic and, and, and personnel and, and some of the things I'm doing. He's got terrific instincts on that. Uh, he has built a first-class team at the Miami Marlins and has uh, – really taken an organization that had real challenges and, and put uh, put it on a whole different track. So I'll bounce lots of things off of him. He, uh, he also is very helpful with clients and, and, uh, and, and client prospects as well as potential hires. Uh, he's willing to get on the phone with virtually anybody and, and tell them uh, why he's affiliated with Rockefeller Capital Management. We feel like we share a lot of the same values. When I first started getting close uh, to Derek, given uh, the fact that he, he needs to be and is careful uh, about those around him, given how many people are, are looking for access for all sorts of reasons. Uh, I spent time with his parents. He met my children. Uh, his parents met my children. You know, we, did, we went to different sporting events. You know, my children are in their early 20s. They've known Derek for a decade. Uh, you know, I know his family. The, the, the values are similar. The, the, the career path and the things that we've done. You know, my baseball career ended uh, with senior year of high school. Um, <laughs> we've, uh, we've done different things in life, but uh, have a lot of the things that matter to each of us in common. So I would raise something with Derek around a key personnel issue and get his views because he's got great judgment as a leader and great judgment as a motivator of people. He does the same. Uh, so it's uh, it's not it, the the relationship. He's a special advisor to the CEO, and it's a that's an active regular role that he provides. Uh, and I talk to him on a very regular basis on uh, on the Miami Marlins and on what's happening there. Huh, quite interesting. All right, let me throw a curveball at you. Speaking of baseball, for our final question, anyone ever give you a gratuity or throw you a tip uh, at the end of a banking deal? 
the only uh, person who uh, ever, I think, paid us more than was in a contract that I can recall, and he's reminded me of this, so, was Anthony Scaramucci way back in the deal that we did around September 11th, where uh, we sold his business to Newberger Berman. Uh, we had a deal to sell the business, and it was going to close after September 11th, and September 11th occurred. And Bob Matza, the president of Newberger Berman, called me, and he said, uh, Greg, given everything going on here, uh, I don't know that we can do this deal in the same terms. And I said, okay, Bob, we'll adjust the terms, but uh, we want to have some upside if it works out as well as we think it can. And he agreed, uh, I, I believe it might have been uh, options in, uh, in Newberger, I forget exactly what it was, um, but we put something in place that provided some upside to Anthony and his team, and, and he was elated and never forgot it, and uh, I think paid us a, a uh, investment banking fee through Merrill Lynch that was beyond what was uh, negotiated. <laughs> quite, quite funny. All right, so I only have you for about five minutes Let's plow through our speed round. These are our favorite questions. We ask all of our guests, and it starts out with, what are you streaming these days? Tell us what you're watching on Netflix. You know, one, one of the things I want to say, Barry, at the outset here is that I never over the years uh, watched a lot of TV uh, from, you know, they, they call it content today. Uh, right. My wife and I, uh, there were certain certain uh, shows that we liked, like Seinfeld and, and Friends and The Office, we typically like the edgy humor. And uh, and by the way, Jeopardy uh, and, and Alex Trebek uh, is such a sad thing for, for us. Is, uh, and I was married in 1990, and he started that in the 80s. And I read that uh, there were 8,200 shows that he did. Uh, I wow. think we saw half of them at least. Uh, so that was a fixture for us. And when I wasn't traveling and when I was home, and I still do to this day, and trying to catch as many of the final ones here as I can, that was something we watched. But not much beyond that. Content today, and this is one of the things I say to my kids all the time, the world today, there's so much in it for young people and for people today. Uh, and content's an example of that because it's terrific. So, uh, you know, from a streaming standpoint, we like the historically-based thing program. So uh, we've watched Chernobyl. Uh, we watched something on The Challenger. Um, you know, we just, on the, on the movie side, we just watched The Trial of the Chicago 7, which was fascinating. Uh, you know, we also like some of the suspense-type uh, uh, shows. There was a BBC show called Line of Duty, which we liked. Uh, I love the movie Death of Stalin, which I thought was uh, so so well done. So there's quite a bit uh, in the streaming world that I, I do, and we do find uh, time to see today. And I, I give credit to the content makers. There's a lot out there. Huh. Tell us about your early mentors. Who helped shape your early career? There are two that I would highlight here. One is uh, a guy named Jerry Kenny, who was a senior executive at Merrill for decades. And then he went uh, and worked for uh, BlackRock for about a decade and sadly uh, died uh, last year. Uh, he's been, he was a mentor to me and was part of my life for decades. Uh, he was an incredibly decent, uh, high integrity man, thoughtful. Uh, he was on the Merrill board. He ran many of the businesses there. Uh, he was a, a, a scholarship uh, athlete at Yale in the 1960s. Um, 
and uh, had several brothers go there as well. They all played football at Yale. Just a tremendous man. He was a, uh, a bit of a mentor to my kids, too. I, I have uh, uh, a couple of children, who, who, uh, one who graduated and one who's at Yale. Uh, and Jerry did things a certain way. Uh, he worked very hard. He wanted to win, but he functioned a certain way. And that had a big impact on me from the earliest uh, time I knew him, which was in the 1990s. A second person who's been a mentor to me over many years is Larry Fink. I've known Larry since the mid-90s. Um, I've known him since BlackRock was, uh, you know, a company worth a billion dollars uh, when we took it public in the late 90s. Frankly, uh, it was worth less than, than, than that when I first started working with them in the mid-90s. Uh, he's been there for me in many critical moments. When I left Merrill Lynch, uh, after it had been sold to Bank of America, he was somebody I went to and, and, and talked it all through with. So he's been uh, uh, a mentor of mine, and he, he's a he and Jerry are both about you know a click ahead of me in terms of generation. Jerry was about 20 years older than me, and Larry's a little more than 10. Uh, and uh, Larry has had a big impact on me as well. He's he's tenacious. He works so hard. He's the same as Jerry. He's going to do things a certain way, but he is uh, frankly obsessive about doing it well. He cares so much about BlackRock. Uh, he's treated it like it's. Uh, his firm for, you know, it, it's been public for over 20 years and, you know, he still treats it as if it's, it's all his money. Uh, mm. So these are two terrific human beings uh, who've had a big impact on me. Quite, quite fascinating. Let's talk about everybody's favorite question. Tell us about what books you're reading, uh, either currently or some of your favorites. Yeah, I'll give you some of my favorites, longtime favorites, uh, Barry. Uh, there are the, the traditional ones. Uh, uh, the, the Fountainhead is probably uh, very high on the list. Uh, Pride and Prejudice uh, is definitely my wife's favorite book, and it's up there for me. Uh, so I, 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 I do read a, a lot. I always have. All five of us do. I have three children and, and my wife. My father uh, reads a ton still at the age of 87. Um I like uh, nonfiction a lot. So, uh, you know, Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin was one of my favorites. Lincoln was just incredible and the ability to still treat people a certain way, even if they were challenging or difficult to him. I read her biography. This was published 25 years ago. Uh, but I just read recently the book on the Roosevelt. It was really focused on Franklin, but there was a lot about Eleanor in there that I didn't know. And she was frankly, tremendous first lady and the first one really actively involved in her own space, which was not surprisingly controversial in the 30s and 40s. Uh, I, I read a, a, a fair amount of uh, suspense as well. Um, a book that I, I finished not so long ago was called I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, which actually helped uh, authorities capture the golden state killer uh and and he's uh he's uh in jail and serving life sentences now and this woman wrote this book which was both um you know made you uneasy and she really researched it and uh sadly she died just as she was finishing it uh re read recently a book on endurance uh, called endurance ernest shackleton that story is an incredible story so lots out there in the space i'm not surprised it's a favorite question for people it, it definitely is. We, we actually had a client who gave everybody in the office a copy of the Shackleton book. And, and it's amazing, some of these nonfiction books, they, they read like thrillers. It, it is amazing, Barry. I mean, that's his life, too. 
And he has a yeah. quotation that I love uh, where he said, true moral courage is optimism. And I, I repeat that, and I talk to people about that, you know, leadership, at least for me, and I think for the best leaders like Lincoln, is, uh, is positive motivation. You have to be the one who's still, you know, standing there and saying this can get done. And that's really a lot of leadership, and Shackleton captured it so well. So uh, it is, it's a page-turner, that book, and his life was. Yeah, to say the least. Uh, let's talk about um, recent college graduates. What sort of advice would you give them, uh, especially if they were thinking about a career in finance? You know, I would tell them two things on a broader basis. Um, uh, and I do give a lot of advice, some of it... Uh, yeah, I told you I'm raising three children who are in their 20s, so probably some uh, they get more than they even like. Um, but one of the things I say to young people all over the place is work for great people, and then when you get in a position to do this, hire great people. It sounds easy, and it hardly happens. People want to make sure they're the most impressive in a room. They want to make sure that they're in control. Uh, I've been able to do so much in my career because I've hired people that are better than me in so many things and so many examples along the way. Hire great people, motivate them, and watch them flourish. And when you're young, find great people. There's a great Mark Twain quote uh, that I love that uh, I I repeat all the time, and my three children could could repeat it uh, readily for you. Twain said, keep away from people who try to belittle your ambitions. Small people always do that but the really great make you feel that you too can become great. So that's one piece of advice I give to young people. And then the second thing I say is uh, it's a long run. You know, I hear people say to young people now, you're so disadvantaged, 2020 is such a difficult time. You know, there's so much unemployment, COVID, all of that's true. But people in their 20s, if they take care of themselves and they exercise and they eat well, can live for 70 or 80 years have careers for six decades or more. People work into their 70s and 80s now. You know, when I was at law school, I was a second-year law student in 1987, and there was a stock market crash, like 22% uh, in 87. And I remember somebody saying to me, and I I thought they were right. Oh, it's a terrible time for us to be coming out. (laughs) That was a blip. Look, at we talked about it. We started, Barry, where you asked me about the 90s. I may have come out into the best decade to come out in the last five or six. Uh, or since World War II, and yet we were fussing about the stock market crash in 87. So it's a long run. Uh, There's going to be a lot that's going to happen that you won't see, couldn't possibly see, one step leading to another. So uh, play it that way. Just get up every day and go after it, because uh, 60, 70 years is a long time, and there's a lot that's going to happen. Quite, Quite interesting. And our final question what do you know about the world of finance, investment management, investment banking that you wish you knew 30 years or so ago when you were first getting started? Yeah, that's a great question, Barry. Uh, what I would say is the following. Uh, I didn't think this through then. I certainly didn't act with it. But now I realize that markets, like everything, are driven by people. And therefore, they're not always in the near term uh, accurate or right. They overshoot. Um, you know, I was with, uh, in 1999, I had a client named uh, Stanford Bernstein, which was run at the time by Lou Sanders, who was the CEO, who was a great investor. 
and Lou's uh, uh, still running an investment organization today. And they were value investors. And uh, I remember saying to Lou, now I was 36 at the time, and he, he was, you know, he'd been around much longer. But I was saying, you know, why don't you sprinkle in some some value internet companies or something, you know, just mix it up a little bit. Uh, because they were getting crushed on a relative basis. And Lou said to me, Greg, it's a bubble, and it's going to pop. And he wasn't going to deviate. And ultimately, he was right. So uh, markets are also tied to human beings who get emotional, who get caught up in trends, uh, and therefore, um, you know, they're not always going to be necessarily where a pragmatic analysis would say they should be. And if you're looking for that, you're making a mistake. You need to understand these are organic, too. And I've learned that uh, probably the hard way over many years. We have been speaking with Greg Fleming. He is the founding CEO of Rockefeller Capital Management. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out all of the nearly 400 previous interviews we've conducted over the past almost seven years. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, wherever uh, your favorite podcasts are found. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and check out my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Look at my daily column each week at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put these conversations together each week. Reggie Brazil is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.